This episode of The Greenpeace is supported by my friends at Immersion Journeys, an award-winning tour consultant based in New York City and your source for experiential luxury travel to Africa, South Asia and way beyond. The Immersion Journeys brand has been built on the foundation that more than the sites, it is the experience. Immersion Journeys is also a proud supporter of Sabi's Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve. Immersion Journeys focuses on conscious luxury with an emphasis on positive community and conservation impact through travel. Their deep partnerships with select lodge groups such as Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve, their selection of professional safari guides and creative trip itineraries provides their guests with unique experiences bar none. For more information, please contact Immersion Journeys on telephone number 917-686-2620 or check out their website at www.immersionjourneys.com That's I-M-M-E-R-S-I-O-N-J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-S.com You can also drop them an email at info at immersionjourneys.com tuning into the Greenpeace, that's spelt P-I-E-C-E. I'm Warren Green, your host and one of the storytellers of this weekly podcast, where I'll be telling campfire stories about sustainable safaris, misadventures and travel tales from around the world. I have a number of interesting people, including safari guides, conservationists, lodge managers and philanthropists lined up to share their stories and expertise with you. So, grab yourself a beverage, sink back into a comfortable chair and enjoy the next half an hour with me. So today I've crossed the Atlantic and I'm talking to my really old friend Richard Key, who I met uh, when I was a youngster in the restaurant game and he was a youngster in the restaurant game as well. And I guess we both learned to grill together and we learned to serve tables together. But Rich has taken it a whole lot further than me, having opened and sold and opened and sold a variety of restaurants from steakhouses through to Italian bistros. And now he is a, a restauranteur in the Western Cape of South Africa. So Rich and I are South African boys and uh, we love to braai. And being here in America... Um, I'm always yearning to reintroduce a bit of my southern flavor, southern African flavor rather, into my cuisine. And uh, every now and then, well, I suppose at least once a month, I give Rich a call to give me some braai tips because, in my opinion, he is the braai master. And we're going to discuss today just a few items about our our greatest cultural pastime, the braai. Uh, Rich, what do you reckon the braai should be translated to if you were to give it an English name? Yeah, well, you am... Um... You give me some nice accolades there, but I've got, I got to say that you're probably a better braai master than I am. And um, opening and opening and closing and moving on to the restaurants, I've probably closed more restaurants, not sold the things. So <laughs> maybe that's not the best intro, but I do like to braai, and I think I know a little bit about braaiing. Um, the, the, the word itself, braai, there's a little bit of history there. It comes from the Dutch word braden, which means yeah. to roast. Was then yeah. converted to braai vlees in Afrikaans, which means grilled meat. And then it, it subsequently, I mean, every culture, 
in South Africa calls it a briar, which just means to grow. So if one wants to call it an English terminology, it's to grow, but it doesn't sound right to grow. So we call it a briar. And that's not common to all our people and all our languages in South Africa. But but it's more than just uh, a grill, right? I mean, a braai is an occasion. It's uh, if you if you were inviting friends over on a Sunday for lunch or for dinner, you would specify come for a braai, and that was a very specific occasion, right? Definitely, yes. The the the, the, the art or the act of braaiing is just putting your meat on and cooking your meat. But the actual braai is synonymous with good times, good fellowship, friends, having a drink, having a convivial time. Period where you can just enjoy yourselves and, and socialize. And um, if you actually, sometimes if you buy yourself, you can just get lost in the fire and you can philosophize to the end of the, end of the world and back again by yourself. But the fire itself is a, is a place, it's like your campfire story, that fire itself is an amazing thing, yes. Yeah, I know. Well, so you've hit the nail right on the head there because whenever I'm, I've been invited to a braai, I never rock up just as the meat is ready. Uh, or even just after it has been served. I'm I'm yep. always like first there to make sure that I'm cracking the first beer with the Brian Master and watching as the 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 logs get stacked and the newspaper gets rolled into balls and then the fire gets lit and we stand around and drink beer and we watch as the flames envelop the wood and eventually it slowly bu- burns down to some hot coals. I mean, to me, that's very much the, the aspect of being at a braai is that early stage. And so I reckon a braai could, what, do you, what would you say is the shortest a braai could be? Well, your... when you've got your fellowship of friends around and your, and your merry band of, of fellow braais, your braai is going to be at least a three-hour period. There we go. <laughs> You're going to have an hour to an hour and a half of standing around the fire, lighting it, getting it going, allowing the coals to burn down. Then the braaiing period of, 10, 15, 20 minutes, then the resting period of the meat for another 10, 15 minutes, and then the sitting around a table and enjoying the, the repast. So you, you can't look at anything less than three hours. So what's three hours? A four drink, a five drink braai? <laughs> Not just a single drink braai? <laughs> that definitely would be the case if you're talking about beers in dumpy bottles. <laughs> exactly. But that, that's, that's the what it is, yeah. That's the beauty of braaiing. Over here in America, we've been invited to the the North American equivalent, which is known as a barbecue, BBQ. And you you show you show up, and in no time, the sausages are grilled, and the hamburgers, patties have been grilled, and and the and the braai is served. And it's a you know I don't want to discredit the American braai, but it's nothing compared to the whole African affair where there's wood and coals and conversation and many beers. And I think the last thing you will ever see on a South African braai is a is a Vienna sausage or, or or a thin beef patty. I mean we go to all ends of the world to cook half the bloody farmyard. Please God no, I think <laughs> Vienna definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, I mean, uh, we wouldn't do a pink Vienna. We would do good old school burrowvos, farmer's yeah. sausage. Yeah. Okay, so now you talk of farmer's sausage, and and that's a that's a subject of of almost a podcast on its own because there's so many different types farmer's sausage. But for our people who haven't um, experimented with this with a good old fashioned Afrikaner burrowvos, how what is the what is the traditional ingredient that makes burrowvos so unique and so pleasurable? Well, back in the day when, when the trek burra 
we're moving through from from the Cape or from the from KwaZulu Natal into the interior of the country, and they would shoot for the pot. And the original the original burubos would have then been game meat that would have been diced up, and whatever wild herbs that they would have got from the from the felt, they would have got wild sage, wild rosemary. They would have had coriander mm -hmm. with them, and they would have mixed this up with a bit of the caul fat, and they would have put mm -hmm. it. Around the intestine, or into the intestine, stuffed it in the intestine, and then put it on the coals to to brine. These days, you've got a mixture. You've got straight beef side, your beef burros. You've got a, the far better one if you can get a, a beef and about 20% pork, so that you get the fat from the pork, the flavouring in there. And then it's the coriander which gives it the flavour. And then each individual butcher or farmer will have his own secret quantities of what the spices that he puts in, just to add a bit of piquancy. To his flavour. So in the Western Cape, for argument's sake, we've got the Khrabovos out of the Khrabo Elgin region, which is our top quality boss and tends to win a lot of awards on an annual basis at the various supermarket competitions and cook-offs because well, of its flavour profile that they've got right. And it's something that they've just managed that everybody loves the Khrabovos. I wonder. I wonder if they're putting into it some apple cider. I was talking to Jacques Smith, uh, who grew up in Khrabo. And uh, we, we got talking about the apples that grow there. And I just suddenly thought to me, maybe their secret ingredient is a little bit of cider. Because I know some Buravorses do have uh, a little bit of vinegar in them to, to kind of balance some flavors there. It's quite possible that, Warren, because, I mean, you, you could just soak your, your meat a little bit in a, in a cider just to put a bit of piquancy in there. But maybe you'd get a bit of sweetness coming through in the meat then. Not too sure. It's a good mm -hmm. idea. I'm going to try it one day, though. <laughs> Of course, I was, you at, I was at one of our supermarkets today doing our weekly shop for the during the lockdown period, and they're selling apple cider in big vats, raw apple cider. So I can do this. I can try this one, and we can have a chat about it again. Yeah. Well, then we, we'll, we'll revisit the Bri podcast and figure out what's in Burovos. But, the, you know, Burovos doesn't just come in, in one uh, thickness. It comes in a variety of thickness. And I must admit, I am far prefer cooking a nice fat diameter burovos than the thin fingerling type um, buri. How about you? Well, i got to say that your, your thin burovos will tend to dry out very fast on a bry grid mm. over the fire. Where you don't want a piece of dry vos. You want something that's got a bit of juice and a bit of flavor in it. So the thicker vos is so much nicer because it takes a bit longer. The outside gets a nice crispy burnt caramelized flavoring and the inside is still nice and moist and juicy. So it's a much better one, the slightly thicker one, yeah. I totally agree with you. Okay, you, you've said two words there that resonate with me when cooking burovos, and I think there are a lot of people that might disagree with us, um, and, I, and I believe that you and I cook burovos the same way. We don't prick the skin. Um, yes, you do with a pork sausage, which is really fatty. You want to release some of that fat. But as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to cooking a piece of buri on the, on the grill, never prick it, never release those juices. Do you agree? Totally agree with you, Ryan. The more, the, the more you release it, the more the flavor you're going to lose, and the more you're going to flame your fire and you're going to burn the sausage, which you really don't want to do either. Yeah, and this is a this is a, a, a really good reason as to why there's like the pecking order around the braai. You know, you've got your braai master, the man who's hosting the party holds the tongs. He's the dude that's running that show. And at, at no point will he release his tongs to anybody else around that fire because for fear that they might turn the meat when it's not quite ready to be turned or prick the burovos while he's got his back turned. Um, do you uh, have the sense of the braai master when, you, when you're doing your braaiing at home? Well, I've got to be honest that 
our social circle these days, I spend a lot of time in training the husbands, the male <laughs> friends, in how to, how to write properly. So I'm, I'm actually, these days, I'm quite contented to say, there's my tongue shaft, I just need to go inside for a while. Do you mind taking over? Going to other people's homes, reciprocal brides in their places, some of them are a little bit scared these days to give me the tongs. Uh, and uh. I've got one old mate, he, he turns his meat every 30 seconds, which is not the correct way to bry, but I've known him for 20 odd years, I've accepted the way he brys, I used to query him in the, in the early days, I don't even bother anymore, I just let him bry, take the food <laughs> off, it's never got a nice caramelized char on the outside because it, it looks sort of grey because it's been turned too quickly, never had the time to go and bry nicely, and I eat the meat and we leave and we go home and say, nice bry, thank you. <laughs> so there's this is a really important point to people. If you've been invited to a bry, never assume that it's okay to step in and take over a man's tongs when he's gone for a pee or to go and get himself another beer, correct? Unless he's offered you the tongs, and you really shouldn't offer comment about the way the person brides because that person thinks that he's a great bride. Exactly. You need to kind of rub his ego a little bit and, and make sure that he brides well. And, and it's his bry. I mean, it, it's, it's like a prime. It's a primal thing. He's providing for the family. And, <laughs> and so during all of this, there's a there's a separation of genders, or or there certainly was when when I was brying in South Africa. That might have grayed a little over the years, but being somewhat chauvinistic in that at that time, the the men had their place and the women had their place too. And I know Jill um does an amazing sell, job with sellers, not that that is her role. But in our days when we were brying, the women were kind of expected to stay inside and make potato salad and green salad and uh, go and talk about knitting needles or something. Has that changed much? <laughs> I, I, I do believe that those days are changing, but there's still few and far women who actually want to get involved in the brying side of things. They, they sort of realize that it's a male domain and the male wants to fluff out his feathers a little bit and stand around the fire and talk, talk nonsense with his mates. So they do tend to leave us alone. But there's a lot more integration with Brian these days and that one does a lot more different products on the fire now and not just the meat. That you actually Brian things to put into salads these days. Whether it's courgettes oh. or aubergines or maybe peaches to slice up into a, into a fried prawn salad. There's so much more food coming off there. And of course now with the onset of the vegetarianism in the world, one's got to do this Brian with vegetarian food. And I specifically talk about my daughter, Georgia, who loves a good bry, but having been a vegetarian for over two years already, I've got to rack my brain to make sure I bring up good food for her. So she'll come and check me out at the bride and make sure I'm doing things well for her. Um, and that's just taking it a little bit too far. I mean, imagine somebody coming out, A, telling you how to cook what's on your grill, and B, telling you precisely how they want their medium-rare piece of corn grilled. Um, yeah. That, that wouldn't be allowed because I am the bride master when it comes to that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, be, that would warrant a slap with the tongs. <laughs> <laughs> At least a nip on the hands, yes. But now, Rich, I mean, just thinking back, there's, besides the veggies that are, that are making a, a, I don't want to say a comeback to the grill, but I mean, that back in the day for me, veggies on the grill would be Onions and potatoes wrapped up in tin foil and, and buried foil in the coals. Put in the fire, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, and, and you can, nowadays you can do do any veggies. I mean, I still like to do that that old school 
chopped up potato and onion in a like in a tinfoil bucky and put into the into the coals. If you've got time to do a baked potato in the fire, it's still far better than a baked potato out of the oven because that skin of the potato crispens up nicely inside the fire, imparts a good smoky flavour into the actual potato flesh as well. But um, mm. nowadays we do beautiful big open brown mushrooms stuffed with pesto and feta, do courgettes dressed in a in a lemon or lime dressing, aubergines with grilled aubergines with, with, with hummus on top of it. There's so many different flavor profiles that one can do moving away just from the meat. I mean, if I think when I grew up, the type of food that we ate of the briar, oh, my father thought he was a great briar, but he was really a terrible briar. It was a <laughs> six, to, six to ten drink briar in those days. The, the, the meat was a byproduct of the actual brying. So you were lucky if you ate anything decent. You were lucky if the woman inside had made a coleslaw or a potato salad or a rice salad maybe that you could eat because the meat that came off after 10 or 12 drinks and the old men brying outside, the meat was terrible. Tough as old leather, burnt horribly. So in a way, I'm quite thankful for the changes that's, that's happened over the years and how we modified and become good brides because we like the flavor of food. And I think that's, that's the most vital thing about a brides. It's the quality of the food that you want to bride. There's no good going to go and buy quantity and forsake quality. You'd rather look for that lovely marble piece of steak with that Karoo lamb chop with that beautiful one centimeter of fat on the outside that you can render and crispen up. Or as you say, that nice thick burrovos and not thin, cheap, nasty stuff. Or good quality free-range chicken. Mm. You want good, nice food. So it's the same thing. You want unblemished vegetables if you're going to slice and dice and cook them on the fire. You want things that are come off and you can enhance flavors with different dressings and marinades and really make things tasty. Rich, before you go into too much detail there, Dan, and I know we will venture down the path and I'll forget to ask you this question, but you talked about stuffed mushrooms on a, gr on a grill, a bride mushroom. I, for the longest time, have always tried to bry a mushroom, but I always get it messed up. Firstly, how do you stuff a mushroom? And I'm th thinking about one of those large black portobello mushrooms that are so nice and big and sort of almost feel and taste steak-like once you've cooked them. But how do you stuff those? I, I don't. I, that's the thing that's always well, confused me. If you get the big step, the, the, the big, what we call an open brown, so that the gills are actually, they're open. They're, they're not closed in at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're going to put the, the mushroom down on the top of the mushroom. That'll be its base is what you're going to cook on. And so the head of the mushroom. Yes. Then the stalk yeah. is sticking up into the air. And it's around gotcha. the gills that you're going to put whatever. If it's a pesto with a sun-dried tomato and feta and chopped up mushroom with a little bit of olive oil, you'll stuff, you'll stuff that the fanned area with that stuffing. And then you bright just from the, from the bottom down. And the heat cooks through. And you'll eventually see the oil will start bubbling. And everything will soften on the top. And you get a nice crispy layer at the bottom. So when you do cut it, it actually is steak-like when uh -huh. you eat it. So you don't turn your mushroom once you've stuffed it? No turning of a mushroom. Bottom up only, and that's it, yeah. You see, now that's where you are the brine master, because to me, anything that goes on the brine needs to be turned at least once. And if you can turn it twice, then you get those nice crisscross patterns on it, and that looks even better. But obviously, you lose the stuffing in the mushroom, and that's uh, that's where I've been screwing up. Okay, well, lesson one learned. Right, now, let's just talk very quickly um, 
about and you just you've just touched on it so it's piqued my interest i'm thinking about the choice of meat and obviously we have a variety of meat types pork lamb beef uh, and you can get onto your poultry dishes but let's just talk about beef right now and and the best cuts for grilling um, and you know why would you choose what you prefer to put on the grill because i have my own ideas about what what i like to grill well, Warren, I, I think for, for me, you need meat that's got good fat on it. And if you can get something that's got subcutaneous fat, the, the, the internal marbling of a cut of meat, so that mm -hmm. when you're brying it on the grill, that meat inside, or the, 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 um, the fat inside the meat breaks down and runs into the meat and imparts such a good flavor. So for me, I don't like a prime cut like a fillet, because a fillet's got no fat. So mm. it's just a soft, flabby piece of meat that you put on the grill, put on the brine, bright, and it comes up and it's going to be tasteless. You need something like a ribeye steak, or South African context, a ribeye steak, I'm not sure what you call them over there, that's got nice internal fat, a rump steak that's got a good, a good half inch of marbling on the outside, um, a T-bone maybe that's got the bone because the bone remains nice and succulent and you get a little bit of fillet on the side and the sirloin on the other side. The bone gives you flavor, and the fat on the outside of the sirloin gives you the flavor inside the meat. Um, these days, we get something that's called a tomahawk, which is the rib eye on a bone. And yeah, the tomahawk yeah, yeah. can be anything between sort of 800 grams and two, kilo, two kilograms. It can be a big hunk of meat. And that's, I do that. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. I do that slightly differently. I don't just put it on the brine bright. I do a reverse sear with that, but we'll talk about that later. And that for me now these days, because of the amount of internal fat, is probably one of the best cuts to do on the fire because of its flavor profile. Um, your, your slightly chewier cuts with your bolos, your briskets, uh, your, your, uh, sorry, your spider steak, your skirt steak, flank, they, they, they dry out a little bit on the, on the fire and they get a bit tough and chewy. They sort of more for slow cooking purposes and maybe putting in the pot and doing it as a poiki on the fire. Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking specifically brying, and that doesn't mean to say that doing a poiki or a pot or a braised uh, slow cook doesn't have to be a bry too. That can still be of the same occasion. But the bry that I'm wanting to focus on right now is hot coals, Roaring mm. fire, conviviality, tongs, yep. lots, lots of action, plenty cold beers, and maybe a rugby game afterwards. Perfect. Yeah, and I have to agree. I think the tomahawk steak, which is widely known over here, uh, is a prized cut of beef. It's very expensive if you eat out in restaurants. And normally, as you just said, it's it's utterly delicious. It's very juicy, and you know, it retains that fatty flavour, obviously from from the fat being cooked away. I have a question for you because, again, you know, the brine master should should know how to cook these things. And most of us. It's should... also, it's, it just break in there. it's also the, the bone because the bone keeps the, keeps all the flavor in as well and imparts its own flavor into the meat. Mm. So here's a question for you. I mean, a tomahawk steak, let's say it's about just over an inch in thickness, maybe an inch and a half. Uh, it's a nice broad flat piece of meat with a good piece of bone in it and you and I both like to eat our meat medium rare to rare. Um, it's always been a trick to me when you're eating meat that underdone to get the fat to render out of it. What's your trick uh, in getting that fat to turn but at the same time not overcooking your, your cut of meat? So if you've got 
fat on the outside of the cut. So like yeah. on the tomahawk, if it's on, on, on the outside tomahawk, what, what I'm doing these days, I've got myself little stainless steel racks that I can put the meat sideways down just to render the fat, first of all, for three um, or four minutes on hot coals. It yeah. doesn't really cook inside the meat because it's just cooking the fat. Before you turn the meat flat onto its side as we normally bry, and then bry the meat normally there for three to four minutes per side before taking it off and allowed to settle and rest for eight, nine, ten minutes. But I, I'll tell you what, what I do now with a tomahawk, and I prefer to buy a tomahawk that's between maybe two and two and a half centimeters, so uh, inches, so you're talking about there about a seven and a half centimeter thick steak. We wrap mm -hmm. it in thin foil and we put it in the oven at 130 degrees, which mm -hmm. is very low, and we cook that thing for 45 to 50 minutes. Take it mm. out and we put an internal meat thermometer into there and if the meat thermometer is registering 55, it means that the inside of that meat, the perfect middle of that meat, is at 55 degrees, which is a nice ambient temperature. When we started the oven to heat the oven up, we light the fire. So in 50 minutes time, the fire's dying down, the coals are just about ready, the meat comes out of the oven and I rest that meat for 10 minutes inside the house. Just whilst the coals die down, and you get that lovely white ash that goes on the coals. Then we yeah. take a nice seven centimeter, six, seven centimeter thick tomahawk, and you bang it flat on the coals, not on a grid, but on the coal on the white dust for one to one and a half minutes. Just to crispen and caramelize the outside of the meat, you turn it over. The same thing happens on the second side, one to one and a half minutes. And you take it inside and you slice it and you eat it immediately. It's called a reverse sear steak. You have never tasted such a perfect fry in all your life. But but doesn't the, the coal affect the flavor? Does the coal not taste um, gritty or, or grainy, the, the, the coal dust that gets on there? Or does you it see, just simply... As I say, you wait for your coals to get that fine layer of white dust on it. So it's literally within 10 minutes after dying down to where you'd normally bry. Mm -hmm. Then the coals then don't... That fine powdered ash acts as a screen between your meat and the actual burning coal. So when you pick up the meat with a pair of tongs, there's no coals on your meat. It doesn't hang off there. It's uh. just caramelized it beautifully brown and imparted a direct wood smoke flavor into your meat. Your meat inside is rare as can be because it's only been cooked at, 50, at, 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 at 130 degrees C, which is what, in, in Fahrenheit? 220 to 30? It's low. Yeah, it is but low, it's really. temperature inside and it's warm inside. And because of the settling time inside, it is completely relaxed as a muscle and as a joint of meat. And when you carve it and slice it, I promise you, you're going to go back for another one, another one, and another one. I, I can see myself doing that, Rich. But now listen, what about seasoning? If, you, if you're cooking your meat like that, do you season it before you put in the foil or do you not season it at all? And, and you just serve it people? Nothing at all. If somebody wants to put their own little bit of salt and pepper on afterwards, up to them. But that meat has so much flavor. If it's good quality, free-range beef, yes. Well, you've just said something, free-range beef. That, that takes a little bit of different treatment as well, because free-range implies that that steer has been wandering around in a paddock somewhere and uh, giving its muscles something to do. So it's going to be a slightly tougher cut um, to chew into. Do you, uh, do you do 
do you do anything special to the meat before you cook it, um, like dry aging, hanging, or, or do you if, buy it? If you buy it, if you buy it from a reputable butcher, or you buy it from the farm directly. If it's free range, if you're getting from, the, if you're lucky enough to get from the farm directly, the farmer would normally have hung that carcass for at least seven days mm. before he butchers it. So that the carcass itself ages a little bit, and then he butchers it in, into into the um, into the forequarter, the hindquarter, and then he'll maybe cut it down into the leg section and whatnot into the full joints, and he'll dry age that for another seven to ten days, and then he'll cut the steaks out of it. And then he'll deliver to you. So the time that you get it, you're probably on day 18. What you should do then is maybe just put a little film of olive oil over the meat and put it on a plate and put it in the bottom shelf of your fridge for five to seven days to slightly mature a little bit more. Uh, You've been very specific there about the bottom shelf. Is that because the bottom shelf doesn't get as cold as the top shelf or just because it's out of the way and therefore you won't won't, uh, be bothered by it? It doesn't get as cold and it doesn't get as wet and moist as, uh-huh. as, as your upper ones. And it, just, it allows there to chill. There's very little air movement around the bottom. And it matures in the fridge a little bit. I've never had to take a piece out there and dry it off with, with um, Kleenex or, or, or a tea towel and have to scrape anything off because it's at perfect, perfect quality there. It's like getting fresh lamb. If you buy fresh lamb, you can't go and dry it and eat it immediately. You need to go and rest that lamb for at least seven days in the fridge. Yeah, well, we in the states we have a bit of a, a problem getting um, country-raised fresh lamb out here. Most of the, the the lamb that you're able to buy in the grocery market stores is imported from, I think, mostly Australia these days. Maybe it's got something to do with the price. Mm-hmm. And you and New Zealand, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a nice buttery lamb. I, I thoroughly enjoy it, but. Um, you've been with me before. We kind of prefer to take the whole lamb, stick it on a spit and spin it around for four hours and then slice it off the bone. H- how do you, well, you, you're luckier than us. You, you have access to a variety of Southern African lamb. The lamb that comes out of the Western Cape uh, is certainly very delicious. You get that regularly now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I get proper Karoo lamb. And the Karoo lamb, your lamb are free range. They've got huge farms for them to traverse on and pick the best little karoo bossy, the little bush that they eat on, which is a herbaceous bush, which gives that meat its lovely herbal flavor. And we sort of know a veterinarian in Newlands, and you'd know where he is at the Blue Cross, opposite the Cardiff Arms, opposite Barristan's Grill. Aha, aha. The the senior partner there actually farms in the center of the karoo in a place called Hofmeyer, a region called Hofmeyer. And yeah, he yeah. free ranges. You, you get you get his lamb, which is the most exquisite. But he he doesn't do the baby lamb. He does a what we call a tweer tunt, a two tooth. Mm-hmm. So that animal is is around 18 months old. So your fat content is a lot higher, but your flavor profile is there. And when you render your fats, when you're in your cooking processes, the meat that you eat from him, it's rich and succulent and delicious. The meat that we get in the supermarkets, even if they call it free range, it's allowed out of its pens for a little while. They still give it hormone treatments. They still give it antibiotics. But your true free range of the farms has got no growth stimulants, no hormones, no antibiotics. It's a natural animal. So you're eating the correct meat and it's good for you as well. And, and it's not overly fatty either, is it? It's not overly fatty, no. Yeah. And, and Rich, again, the, the cut of meat, lamb, for me, a lamb chop, a traditional 
T-bone chop from the lamb is what I like to eat. But I've also, over the years, thoroughly enjoyed the blade chop, you know, with that little round um, bone in it that's got that juicy little piece of, of uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, uh, I've got I think you're more there on a little loin chop. The, lo the loin chop, yeah, but then there's also the blade chop with the marrow bone in the middle. And it's got, I suppose it's coming from the shoulder blade area, and it's normally you get, you do get the You do get the leg chop. So, so for what you would normally roast, they, they, they chop that up into chops these days as well. They're very expensive chops, obviously. Um, but that's got a little bit of bone marrow, obviously, from the leg. Yeah. So that's where your marrow is going to be in the, in the animal. Um, and you get the arm chop from from his front legs, the, the slightly smaller ones. You get the arm chops there, and they're quite succulent and tasty. So that might be the blade one that you're talking about would be the front arm one. Yeah, could be, could be. I, I should actually have my diagrams up to see where these various cuts come from. Come from. Um, yeah. The lamb neck is also a, an aspect of the lamb that I thoroughly enjoy, but I over here I can't get it. Can Is that something that's readily available still in South Africa, or my talking out of my hat confusing that with pork neck no you definitely get the you definitely get the lamb neck a lot of the farmers will leave the neck in in two sections so that you get a bigger section for jointing and putting in the oven um i'm lucky enough that that france was a vet he butchers it into nice neck chops so that you get mm. the neck chop and that's full of flavor that it's a cut that most people you know they sort of Turn up their nose a little bit because it's the neck, you know. It's not a prime cut. It's not a nice loin chop or a rib chop or a or an arm chop, but it's a neck chop. But it's full of flavour because of the bone and the fat content around the neck, protecting mm -hmm. the neck. So it's such a great cut of meat that yes, different way of cooking it because you don't want to do that under high heat. You want to do that slightly under under a little bit of a, a cooler fire or maybe slightly higher. And, and a little bit longer just to render it all and to get into the bone a little bit and heat the bone up and allow the bone then to impart its flavors and juices into the meat as well. Now, lamb to me is a, is a, a meat that lends itself to some preliminary seasoning before you grill it. And I like to make up a, a garlic and rosemary butter paste, which I almost smear over the the meat before I cook it and I let it sit in that maybe call it marinate for lack of a better word for a few hours before sticking it on the grill I mean naturally a lot of that burns away but somehow or other the garlic and the butter and the rosemary kind of permeates the meat and it leaves you with this utterly delicious flavor have you got any um, sort of favorite treatments for lamb before you cook them or while you're cooking them I, I, I have to say when it comes to lamb if I'm born gonna buy supermarket board lamb I think to chop up garlic, fresh garlic and fresh rosemary, and I, I don't mix it with butter, and I mix that with olive oil. Mm -hmm. And I'll rub that into the meat, and I'll leave it for up to 24 hours. But if I'm buying Karoo lamb off the farm, the flavors that are in that lamb, I don't want spoiled by any marinade on them, so I cook that meat completely plain, not even salt or pepper. Oh, wow. There's, yeah. If you've got a bigger, if I'm going to bry a whole shoulder of lamb, which is a fairly, I mean, the, the, the scapula, it's a fairly small section, it's fairly thin, so it doesn't take too much brine. You make up a, a beautiful marinade with mint and coriander and olive oil and a bit of lemon, little, bit, a little bit of lemon zest. 
and you rub that in there and you leave that for 24 hours and then go and put that in a grid and give it a good couple of turns for 25 to 30 minutes and let it soak through there and you can base it with that same same mixture just to keep it going and you can whatever's left of that mixture you can heat up in a little pot and serve it with that mm. that is divine that is absolutely delicious those flavors come out but if you go to greece your Grecian flavors with lamb is what works perfectly well. That's how they do it. Rosemary, olive oil, garlic, lemon juice. Yeah, yeah. Greek food and Greek lamb is probably of the best lamb that you can get, yeah. And then what, would Jill typically make up a, a Greek-style salad to serve with that? Or would she just do one of those beautiful numbers that's got a collection of everything that just has a flavor that blends with the next flavor and leaves you wanting to lick the salad bowl, let alone the lamb bowl. I think Joel would tend to make just a, a simpler one when you've got such a flavor, some piece of meat coming out there. But she's um, she's wanted to look in the fridge these days and see what's in there. And okay, she'll bang something up. It comes out absolutely delicious, full of flavor. When I look at some of the things I eat these days in salad, I'm absolutely blown away at what she pulls out for us alongside a fire and alongside a brine. Crazy, yeah. Yeah, her 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 sides definitely complement any good piece of meat that you can put on your on your braai. And we are talking about braai, which is cooking over hot coals. But you know, sometimes a braai requires that you have hot coals, but you cook the meat off to the side. Um, a lot of people have asked me over the over the years grilling at home and when and, and braaiing at their place. At what point do you start putting meat to the side of the grill and not really cooking over it? And directly over it and my answer has always been well it's the sort of meat that you want to cook a little slower you want those fats to render out a little slower you don't want to burn it um, really quickly you might finish it off on on the coals is there anything that jumps out in your mind that lends itself to being cooked to the side before you actually finish it off on a hot coal or vice versa starting off on hot and then letting it sear away on the side I think for me, in all honesty, Warren, I would probably do chicken more like that. A good, a good piece of chicken when you do it on, on, on indirect heat. So you'd maybe uh -huh. have coals on either side and in the center where, where there's no coals, you put your chicken and slowly let that heat slowly cook through it. And that's particularly if you're going to do chicken from raw and, and try and bright. You, you need to do a slow, gentle heat to slowly warm through that meat and get into the bone and heat and cook through the entire portion of chicken. Otherwise, chicken just stands on the coals and burns on the outside, cooks on the outside and doesn't really cook through to the middle. And by the time, if you leave it then long enough to cook through, it's dry and horrible on the outside. Yeah, I think, you know, again, here, yeah, brying is not always about red meat. You know, if poultry comes into it, I've been to a lot of brys where poultry's been served and it's been literally screwed up completely and i think chicken is probably one of the easiest meats to destroy on a braai um, the various cuts that you can do i mean there's the wings only there's the the wing and the, there's the thigh and there's the leg and there's the breast and of course you've got the whole chicken that you can do on a braai spatchcocked or, or just as the whole thing so i have a few techniques when it comes to braying chicken one I hate to take the skin off. To me, the skin must remain on and preferably to have the cut with the bone in. So, I, I mean, for example, I would hate to cook a, a piece of chicken breast off the bone. Sometimes it's an easy way to cook it, but I, I think it just dries out too quickly. Um, what is your favorite 
technique, uh, assuming that what you want to get to at the end is a nice succulent, juicy piece of chicken flesh, but finished with this crispy, crunchy coat of nice brown skin. Well, I've got to be honest, I'm a little bit of a cheat when it comes to chicken because I do believe that one needs to pre-cook your chicken, whether it's a portions or half a chicken, or even the whole chicken maybe, in some kind of liquid on a stovetop. And then take it out after, after 10, 12, 30 minutes, depending on, on the thickness of, of the portion of chicken that you're doing. Take it and allow, allow it to cool down and then reduce that cooking liquid. Reduce it down if you've used wine or beer or cider or a soda, or tonic water, whatever you've used as, as a cooking liquid just to impart a bit of flavor and keep the chicken moist. You reduce it down and then you add into that liquid, that reduced liquid, you add in your tomato sauce and a bit of brown sugar because a good basting for chicken needs tomato sauce that needs the redness and the, and the flavor profile from tomato, but it needs the sweetness from a good brown sugar, a musk of sugar, some sort of caramelized sugar. Um, mm -hmm. And then you can add in your own, your pepper sauce, your Dr. Pepper, Dr. Bell's, your Tabasco sauce, your sweet chili, or whatever flavor profile you like. Plus your spicing then, if you want to add in cumin, coriander, or you want to add in a bit of paprika or cashmere chili, whatever profile you particularly like is what you add in. And you reduce that down further, so you've got a thick, glutinous basting that you're going to, when you're just about to take, your, when you get to the stage of brine, you're just about to take your food off the grill and that chicken skin, as you say, has crispened up and browned up nicely, is just to give it a lick with a basting brush of that beautiful, sweet dressing, mm. and then go and eat it. But, you know, as much as I brine, I, I do believe a brine needs to be on wood and not on charcoal, and it's got to be in an open fireplace with a grid on top of it. You get the ubiquitous Weber or Weber. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes. And that lends itself for doing on a briquette, which is a byproduct of, of wooden coals. You get to do an indirect chicken, a whole chicken, which you can do in your fireplace if you built up 30 briquettes on either, or 15 to uh, 20 to 25 briquettes on either side, and them to burn down, made a Dutch oven inside there, and you put a chicken inside there, and the chicken that you've taken, you've taken lemon, fresh lemon, you've sliced it into very thin slices, you've Boil that quickly in two minutes in boiling water. Blanch the slices under cold running water. Then take in half a cup of water and half a cup of caster sugar and reduce that down to a syrup. Put your lemon slices back in there so they get completely caramelized in the syrup. You chop up a mixture with mint, ground coriander, and ground black pepper. And you stuff the chicken skin with that mixture. Drizzle a bit of honey over the top and some olive oil. Sprinkle some more coriander and black pepper over them. Put it into your Dutch oven weaver. Put the lid on and you leave that chicken for 45 minutes. Take it out and leave it for 10 minutes to settle. You're going to have one of the most spectacular chickens that you've ever eaten in your life. Crispy, crispy outside skin, brown from the heat of the fire on the outside. It's not underneath the thing, so it's not burning. And all the flavor from the sugary lemon, the coriander, the honey, the mint. and Unbelievable. And, and and your temperature of the coals, that, that's going to be around about 400 degrees, 450. That's I'm talking when about. You start, uh, when you start cooking, yes, after your 30 minutes of letting them burn down, it'll be it'll be right about there. So you'll be right about 220, 220 centigrades in South Africa. Yeah, and it'll yeah. probably come down towards the end of your cooking to 150, 160. 
And then when you stick your meat thermometer into the flesh of the chicken, you're looking for what? Something around, again, I'm talking American, 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I've got to be honest and say, I've never stuck a meat thermometer into a chicken. I stick a knife and I put it down the, the joint between the leg and the thigh. And if that juice that comes out from there is running clear, your chicken is perfect. You if see, there's Rich, a little bit of blood in there, you've got to leave it for another five or six minutes. You see, you are the grill master. The man, a man who doesn't need a, a thermometer to check his meat and can just tell with his <laughs> eyeballs is the grill master. I, I can, I can judge a steak by its weight and 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 the way it feels in my tongues, w w whether it's rare, medium rare, medium or well done. I think but that's I, the way you and I learned how to grill back in the day. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Those are, those are lessons that haven't left me. In fact, when you spoke about um, doing a chicken in some for, so, sort of liquid first, it made me think of two grillers that we worked with, Lenin Gantweni and Morris Sochilife. And, yeah. you know, we, we were chicken running that. Wing. Yeah, we, we were running that spur. And some days we'd have queues outside the door and around the block. And, you know, things had to get on that grill and get off that grill pretty smartly. Otherwise, we'd lose customers. And we were always about retaining customers and making sure everybody was happy. Uh, and I remember we would have these uh, pre-cooked half chickens in the fridge, which were served as a roast chicken. And, and the grillers, I don't think I should say this out loud, but I'm going to, would have an instant way of getting them up to temperature and ready to go out. I tell and people. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would get a bit of a <laughs> they, they would get a flash cooking. We would drop them into into the into the chip French fryer, fry, chip fryer, yeah. for for not more than thirty seconds, as I believe, and then they would go onto the grill, and the guys would um, put that secret seasoning over the top and and a basting, and boy, that chicken was crispy and delicious, and the meat somehow or other had retained its juiciness. Um, it was really a a, a winner. A, the, the ranch chicken. And um, then if you really want to talk about the old spur ranch chicken, the absolutely top quality ranch chicken that came out was the one that was cooked in the mushroom sauce. And then oh, taken wow. out of the mushroom sauce. And when you had to go and then cook it, put it into the into the into the chip fryer, fry it for that 30 seconds to get the skin crispy, put it onto the grill, give it that beautiful spur basting with the spicing in and serve it. Mm. I always know that when I, when my mum was suffering from Alzheimer's and I used to leave in the odd occasion on a Friday or Saturday night and drive to George where my parents lived to see my parents. I would take a FOMO 40 or what is it called? A FOMO 40 or 45 with a ranch chicken and chips. And by the yeah. time I got to Riversdale, that chicken was ready for me to eat. It would have just got softer inside the box. The flavor profiles <laughs> from the basting would have gone into the chips. I would be starving and I would smash it in. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Back to frying. Back to frying. I think we've talked about cuts of, cuts of meat around beef and around lamb. But we've got to look at the pork issue as well. And we've got to think about the pork rib. Because the pork rib on the braai is also probably one of the most delicious things to do as well. And and it can be. It's probably it's probably one of the more... more uh, I want to say laborsome, but but you know for a pork rib to come out at the end really well, I believe you've got to put in a lot of effort to get it there. How do you do yours? Well, I don't think anything can beat the the, the big green egg that you do on your on your deck. But, um, yeah, yeah. Brian, yeah, the Brian's a good way of doing it. I, I tend to cut my my big back rib up, 
into sections, maybe two or three bones, and I'll put them into a two and a half liter Pepsi Cola or Coca Cola or some rather sweet cool drink that we don't ever drink at home. That I've got to go and find where I can go and buy this product, put it in a big pot, and then I slowly put the meat in, nothing else, just that liquid and the meat, and I bring it up to a boil, put the lid on, I put it on a low simmer for around about two hours just so that it breaks down the sinew in between the bone and the, and the actual meat itself and renders most of the fat out of the top of the pork rib. Yeah. Then I take the pork rib out and allow it to cool. And again, as I do with the chicken, that two and a half liters of, of liquid reduces down to maybe 300 milliliters. And you add your flavor profiles into that thing that you want because Coca-Cola, Pepsi, the caramel color of it goes away and it comes out completely clear like a glass of water once you boil it up. Huh. So it's sugar basically huh. that yeah the, the caramel color is basically the sugar that that, that caramelizes. So it, it cooks down. So it's fairly sweet. You don't need to add too much sugar. Add your tomato, your sweet chilies, whatever you want to add in there. Reduce that down again. So you end up out of two and a half liters with all the additions that you put into it. You're going to end up again with maybe three to four hundred milliliters of, of thick, nice basting. Make your fire. And again, your, your ribs are pre-cooked, so they're nice and tender and soft. All you want to do is you want to caramelize that meat under high heat so that it gets nice mm-hmm. crispy, the fat renders a little bit more, and as you take it off to eat it, you base it with that sweet dressing. And that's mm-hmm. what the people drool about. They drool about this flavorsome pork that is soft and tender and that marinade that you've made. That's the secret about it. That mm-hmm. Whatever flavor you like and you put into your marinade, that's the one that you're going to teach your friends to enjoy they want to going to come to you and have a brine, have a three-hour brine, be part and parcel of get, getting their cheek all covered in the juice running down and the marinade that's going to make them filthy. Their fingernails are going to have to get scrubbed afterwards. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I'm a fan of, of the pork rib as well. We, we, we do that here for our friends. And they do. They, I mean, they, they're continually licking their fingers and saying, well, that's my last one. They stick their hand in the pot and grab another. Another one comes um, out. Yeah, but I I t- take a lot of time to do my ribs um, for for a number of reasons. I I like to have a very very tender rib um, to eat, and so basically my litmus test for whether it's correctly done or not is how it falls off the bone when you eat it, and it literally has got to just shrink off the bone. Oh, there shouldn't be any. Yeah, yeah. There should be no um, in, uh, to what do you call the tendons holding holding it back together. And, and so once you've cooked that through and it's softened, it'll just slip off the bone. That to me is the litmus test. But my my trick for ribs is to season them well with a variety of spices. Uh, and again, it depends on the day what spices I'm using. But generally, there's a bit of coriander and a lot of cumin. Um, occasionally, I'll put in some sweet paprika or, or add a little chili. Wrap it up in the in the foil and put it on the grill at a low temperature for about three hours. Sometimes instead of wrapping the individual rack on its own, I'll put them into a a foil dish and I'll line them up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight strips next to each other, standing on on the end of the bone, not flat bone side down, but on the tip of the bone. So they look like they're standing upright. The bones are standing upright. And then I'll, I'll cover that entire thing up, pinch the, with foil and pinch the foil closed so it's kind of watertight and, and then put on the grill. Um, typically, 
I'll do the in indirect heating method where the coals will be yeah. to the side, the, yeah. the, 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 the foil dish will be in the middle, and I'll leave it there for three hours. I suppose if I were to measure the temperature on the thermostat, it would be 200, 225, 250 degrees Fahrenheit. So nice um, and low, gentle. Yeah, low, low and slow. Just just slowly melting but the, you do the layers. That in a Dutch oven, Warren? You do, you can do that in your green egg or your Weber? I, I typically do that on the on the Weber type grill where I can separate yes. the coals and keep a centerpiece and then have the lid closed so that it's. But so uh, you've got the lid closed. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it must be closed. So you're creating an oven an oven environment. Yeah. So that's a, uh, that's just uh, dry heat cooking as against what I do with the wet cooking in the pot yeah. with the liquid. So it it, okay. it comes out the same, and I think that probably both as as easy and as good as just sometimes when you like if I get get home in the afternoon after work and you've got two hours but you need to do things you can just put it in the pot and you can go there's not the making of the fire and everything else that you're going to do later on it's a time yeah. it's a time saver for me it's yeah. it, it's like if I'm doing a lamb rib and a lamb rib is a very 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 fatty thing you can't really just take a lamb rib and put it in the fire and bright and expect to eat it because it is so fatty it is so rich that people aren't going to enjoy it. So that that we do in a in a glass dish with a dry rub in it. And your dry rub, yeah. you always use it as your basis of a dry rub is salt flakes, brown sugar, and black pepper. And then you add in whatever you want, cumin, coriander, chilies, or whatever you want to do into your dry rubs. And you tightly cover that with tinfoil. And you can put that in a Dutch oven in your Weibo, your green egg, or in a normal oven at that low 220, 230 degree Fahrenheit temperature for three hours. And that renders the fat out of the lamb. And then again, you go and put it on your fire and you do that. So that would be the same as, same way as you, as you do your pork rib, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, that, that's how I start my pork rib. And then I finish it on the grill on high heat. Uh, and like you, I have a, a basting that I make up um, while the, the rib is doing its first rendering, that three-hour slow cook. I'll be on the stovetop uh, rendering down a nice rich sauce that I use as a basting. And that sauce... And, and I don't share the recipe with anybody. I suppose the, tr <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is I never remember what the recipe That's is. That's the so. problem. That's exactly <laughs> like me. <laughs> There's this wonderful myth about my famous sauce. Somehow or other, it always turns out to taste a bit like the last set of ribs. So people do believe that I've got this, this, this magic recipe. But um, it, it normally has some key ingredients in it. Uh, and one of them is tomato sauce not necessarily the american style ketchup but a, 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 a nice yeah tomato sauce i will have um some worcestershire worcestershire sauce to be american but worcester sauce in there um what else have i got in i always have some olive oil uh, oh, yeah, yeah not too much soy uh, i do have soy in there say again just a drop of soy sauce it always adds a piquancy yeah, no, there's, there's, the, the soy sauce goes in, red wine goes in. Yes. Uh, depending on the number of ribs that I'm doing, I'll add either one or two cans of, as you call it, Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola. Yep, yep. And then towards the end of that, when I've rendered all of that down, I'll add maybe a tablespoon or two of brown sugar. And I like to add in right at the end, just before I get to the basting stage, a good serving of honey which really just 
melts into that basting and thickens it up quite a bit. And, and then I'll go and apply that to the ribs before I serve them. Um, it, but it, it's that honey that will caramelize if you if yes. you leave them if you leave the rib on the fire just long enough for that for that sauce to heat up. It's that honey that will caramelize it and really important, unbelievable flavor. And and also it gives it that crispy finish. So when you bite into your rib, it gets that little crunchy oh. bite. And yes. Yeah. Ah, man. So, I need to cook some ribs now. Whilst we're talking ribs, and I brought up the, the lamb rib just now, there's another way of doing lamb rib as well. What we call in South Africa, soaked ribicky, a salt rib. Mm -hmm. Where you get your rack of your, of your rib, you can cut it into little portions if you want to, three or four bones each, and you make up a mixture. You've got to go to the chemist, the pharmacy, and you've got to go buy some salt pita. Make up a little mixture with maybe a tablespoon of salt meter, salt meter, salt pita, <laughs> a, a cup of flaked salt, so like a Maldon salt or a crystal salt, yeah. um, a, a little bit of black pepper and a little bit of coriander, and you put that all either in a mortar and pestle and you grind it down or put it into a, into a, a coffee grinder and grind it through so it becomes a fine powder. And you rub that, it's, it, it's a lot of mixture, you, into about two kilograms of lamb ribs that quantity you're going to you're going to rub that into the into the lamb rib and you're going to put it into a airtight container closed in your fridge for three days twice a oh. day you're going to go and open the container up and you're going to drain whatever liquid might have come out because your salt draws oh. the liquid out of your meat and you've got yeah. such a vast quantity of salt to drain that that liquid out because you don't want the meat lying in in its old liquid that's when it starts going off and turning rancid uh -huh. drain it Turn it twice a day. For three days, you do that. On the end of the third day, you take it out of the fridge. You rinse it off under a tap to get rid of all the salt and coriander and black pepper, basically. If you can hang it on your washing line outside, hang it on your washing line outside for a couple of hours to dry out or dry it between kitchen towels. Yeah. Have a hot fire and go and put those salt ribikis on a coals, maybe 10 centimeters above a hot, hot coals. No basting. And you allow those to crispen up, and you eat those soaked ribikis. You are gonna chalish for them. You're gonna go wild for them. <laughs> now, Rich. So we've spoken about pork and lamb ribs. The trick um, for the brymeister, the brymeister has got to be cooking beef ribs, which are probably one of the hardest, in my opinion, cuts of beef meat to cook on a coal. Um, yes, I can I understand the braising and doing a, a short rib casserole, but brying a short a beef short rib, do you know of any tricks or secrets to doing that? Because that is the challenge. Two ways, I think. Well, I, I think you can go like the way you do your pork rib. Yeah. Indir indirect heat, first of all, slowly rendering it down because you do need that short, nice, fat beef short rib. I mean, they are beautiful things, but you've got to break down that, that sinew and the tendon in between the thick bone and, and that gorgeous meat. You've got to slow, slow braise that. So indirect cooking for your two to three hours, again with a dry rub over it, completely covered in tin foil, as you would do your pork rib. Take it out, allow that to rest completely, make your fire high heat and get them nicely crisp and browned on the outside with a bit of marinade over them. And that doesn't have to be too sweet to marinade because it actually... With the beef, you don't want a sweet, sweet marinade. With the pork meat, you want nice, sweet marinade. With chicken meat, you want nice, sweet marinade. But beef is just a nice, gentle marinade that you want. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. do it, or do it in a dry rub with a bit of olive oil 
in the oven, first of all, and render that down for two or three hours before going to crisp it up on the fire. You can never go wrong with that. Actually, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law phoned during our lockdown uh, sometime during this week to say they'd like to try the rib just like that. And I talked them through it, and they phoned me the next day to say it was magnificent. Yeah, excellent. Now, you're speaking about marinade. What's, what, is there a difference between marinating and, and brining? Yes. Uh, the, 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 there's a total difference between marinating and brining because brining is, is, is basically just a, a salt water that you would, yeah. put maybe, you'd, you'd put maybe your chicken, maybe a brisket, a flank steak. You'd put that into a brine liquid for two or three hours before frying or before cooking. It will just plump up the meat and put a bit of moisture into the meat. So it's your dry cuts that you want to yeah. brine a little bit and put a little bit of that salty flavor into the meat before brining. You... The marinating is an after cooking that you're going to go and put your basting on, basically. Okay, because I've I've seen a a couple of comments on brining and there's dry brining and then there's brining and so well, from what I yeah when I told you about the salt rubikis that's yeah, a that's dry they, brining because they they're brining in that salty mixture dry but okay, your normal brining unfortunately what um what uh, chicken hatcheries do these days is that it's legal tender now to brine a chicken. So they inject a chicken with up to 15% of a brine liquid into the chicken. That it adds obviously to the weight, so it gives them a better price point, but it also adds to the flavor profile of the chicken and keeps the chicken moist when it's been cooked. So that's your liquid yeah, brining. On, the, on that point, and I was, I was chatting to my um, farm-raised uh, happy chickens um, the farmer who was saying that he does not brine any of his any of his chickens, and he was telling me about the commercial brining process that our major food suppliers here comply with. Uh, there is a degree of of cleansing agent that is used in that brine as well. Um, I hope it's not disinfectant. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I think it's pretty close to it. Now, in fact, they use a <laughs> they have a, they, they're allowed to wash their chickens in a chlorine um, mixture. Obviously, it's not overly done, but there, there yeah. is a there is a point Albert, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So he advised me if I was going to brine my chickens, particularly my whole chickens, that I should do it for up to eight hours and uh, just essentially get your fingers between the flesh and the skin uh, around the breast, loosen it up, bread, put the salt granules in there, and leave it overnight in the fridge, and that process will allow one the salt to absorb moisture and then yep. the part that i didn't really understand maybe it's because i didn't study chemistry there is a reversal where the chicken then reabsorbs the moisture that was absorbed by the salt but if you leave it for too long i think you get to that point where you're at with your Never land brine. where yeah huh? yeah you have a brine yes yeah, and, and so with the chicken, after eight hours, that's sufficient, and you really don't need to dust. We can't take the salt out because it's now packed in underneath the skin. But you can then add your your different um, herbs and and flavors that you want to impart on, on the in the grilling process. Yeah, that's just, no, no. I was just so I was just saying that so the the brining process with chicken is a little different to that of lamb, and particularly the dry brining process. And then I was curious about the marinating, because some recipes I've read encourage you to create this concoction uh, drop your meat into a, sort of a vacuum seal bag uh, and leave it in that marinade 
for a couple of hours, not, you know, not more than one or two hours. Um, I can't understand how that's sufficient time for the meat to absorb any of the flavor anyway. It would surely have to be there for longer. And then if you're using an additional agent like a vinegar or so on, you're going to start the cooking process in the bag anyway if you do it for much longer than four hours. Sadly, Just you some... are, yes. Also, if you've got a good cut of meat, and if, you, if, you, if you're particularly talking meat now, you don't really want to marinate that meat for too long because you want the flavor of the meat to be the number one priority. You want to get something maybe to enhance the flavor profile, but not to take over the flavor profile because, after all, that's why we bribe. We want to eat and taste that meat that is meant to be good for us and is meant to be beautiful. So I don't mind the basting afterwards, but marinating meat is a little bit of an anathema for me. In the, in the, in the days, if you're lucky enough to, to get venison from a, from a hunter who goes out and does sustainable hunting, that meat is fairly tough because your venison, as you know, is fairly dry. There's very little fat in it. And there's muscles are well used. There you do need a marinade, maybe in a buttermilk marinade or in a yogurt marinade or maybe in a red wine marinade for 24 to sometimes 48 hours because it just enhances your flavors and tenderizes the meat. But for normal beef and lamb and things like that, me, I'd rather cook it if it's prime cuts and then baste it and then eat it than marinate. Mm -hmm. so it, depends what, it depends what you're brining. If you're doing chickens, marinate your chicken for all means because chicken is a carrier. Chicken is a fairly flavorless thing. It will pick up flavor profiles that you're trying to put into it as to what you're trying to get out of the chicken. You would never mm. go and marinate a, a piece of burrowbos, would you? But it's the same sort of thing. It's just a chopped up meat with a bit of fat and spicing that's inside the casing. Yeah. But you wouldn't go and marinate yeah. it because you're going to kill that sausage. Yeah, so true, true. Be wary of, of basting quality meat. You can baste your, your tougher, chewier cuts that you're going to do more slow cooking because you are going to change the flavor profile of them and maybe make them a little bit more palatable in a way, if one wants to say. But prime mm -hmm. cuts, prime cuts, you want to eat the meat. Your T-bone, your prime rib, your tomahawk, your rump steak. Now there, I mean, you can't go wrong with a rump steak just on the fire. Three minutes, three minutes, take it off, settle it for five minutes, slice it, eat it, maybe like put a sprinkling of, of some good salt on there. Mm. Well, Rich, I'm, I'm starting to salivate. Uh, you know, one thing I, we I, haven't touched on, Warren, I think we do need to touch on, I know our time's running out here hectically. We haven't talked about a fish broth. <laughs> No, I, I, we haven't touched the fish pie, and that was what I was going to come over to right now. I was going to segue into the conditions outside, and I can actually see a couple of what looks like American shad in my creek breaking the surface, and so oh, I immediately started to think. Man. We're, not, we're not quite into the fishing season just yet. Right now, the rockfish are in the bay, but there's a moratorium on catching them. This is about the time of the year when they head up into the fresh water to spawn, so it's not a good time to take them out of the water and eat them. But the rockfish that we get down here is utterly delicious. We also have a, a fish called bluefish, which is, is in fact the very same species that you get off the Natal coast in South Africa, the KwaZulu Natal coast, uh, which shad, exactly. Same fish, yeah. nice and toothy, very fatty. Um, but a, a bunch of other stuff that occur in the bay. But I remember, for me, the best... Ah, you know, I can't say best because there are so many different <laughs> fish that you and I have eaten fresh from Cork Bay Harbour that, that are utterly delicious and, and need to be cooked in a variety of different ways. Um, but I remember one particular 
braai that we had at your house, we cooked a snook or a few snook. I think we and cooked they snook. were I just. Think our I wives mean, might have, we might have been a cook by harbor and got snook and come home, and then our wives went to the hairdresser. That's right. Well, and I don't know where they went. There was two snook down, and there was no food for them. <laughs> and, and I know, I know, we got into your cellar and and drank some of that gorgeous <laughs> red wine that you have. But so, Rich, the, the the snook in a way reminds me of cooking bluefish because. It's a nice oily meat. Um, and here, if I can just tell you a quick story, I think I might have told you this before, but if I have, just keep quiet because it's an entertaining story. When we first arrived in America uh, and were literally living in a, a two by four wide house on, on Long Island where we could hardly afford to sneeze, let alone pay rent, um, it was actually quite a, a good spot to be because we were close to an access that took us across to this beautiful white beach called Smith, Smith Point Beach. And in October, September, October, the rockfish and the bluefish would be migrating down the coast, chasing Manhattan or some other baitfish. And you could literally see the, the, the clouds of bait moving through the waves being pursued by these predators. And the fishermen would line the shore as far as your eye could see, they would wade in up to their waist, get a good cast out beyond the breakers, and then jigger um, a lure back towards the shoreline. And eventually they would hook up with something. Most often it was a fish called bluefish. And it was, I mean, really nice, eh? Big fish, two to three foot long, put up a tremendous fight. They would catch the fish. They would drag it up onto the beach, take the hook out, kick it further up the beach so it wouldn't go back into the water and just leave it there to perish. And... I, I was, one, astounded that there would be such carnage on the shore um, and people wouldn't be conservation-minded and turn those fish back into the ocean because they weren't going to eat them. Um, and I approached one of the fishermen and I said, listen, um, I see you've just turfed that fish up back up the back of the hill there. Do you mind if I take it or are you planning to keep it or what? And he said, no, you're welcome to have it. So I said, thanks. And as a matter of interest, why don't you want it? And he said, no, it's a trash fish. So I said, well, you know, why, why don't you return it to the ocean? And he said, no, you can't return it to the ocean because it's catching all the, the bait fish. And it's also catching his lure. And his lure is going to be used for catching rockfish, which are the rarer of the two species and the more prized fish to catch. So right. they were of the, this belief that if they kept the bluefish from going back into the water, they'd have a better chance of catching rockfish, and they weren't interested in eating bluefish. And in fact, I've spoken to many people since, and they say that bluefish tastes too fishy. Um, anyway, I took that bluefish home, and I put it on the grill. I had some coals going. I actually started off with a wood fire, which on Long Island is either not allowed or I made too much smoke. But the next thing I knew is PC Plot had leapt over the fence and was wanting to arrest me for making a fire. He thought I was burning the house down. I said, no, I'm not. I'm from South Africa. I'm brying. What are you talking about? I'm brying. I said, okay, I'm having a barbecue. Anyway, he told me to suppress my coals and do whatever. And I ate this bluefish and I cooked it with a sort of an apricot jam marinade, lathering it all the time until it eventually was nice and crispy on the outside and soft and juicy on the inside. Utterly delicious. But it reminded me of snook, which is, I know, one of your fortes on the grill. Yeah, well, it, the snook, you also do that, flecked it open, bone in it, its backbone still in, so you flick just the two fillets open, spine basically out, and just that backbone holding it together, and you'd make up a, a basting sauce 
with fresh garlic, butter, and the apricot jam. Mm. And with the, you'd put it in the microwave just for 10 seconds just to soften it with a brush and you'd base that on the skin. What a heavenly flavor. It's a match made in heaven. Snook and that and that basting because it comes out, as long as you don't overcook your, your snook. I mean, fish is also such a delicate thing. You don't want to overdo it because it dries out so quickly and that then spoils your fish and it's a horrible thing. Just good for making a kedgeree afterwards or something maybe. But you want to eat that, that fish. That fish must still have moisture in it and all its flavor must still be there. The nice thing about the snook is it has... Its bone structure is different to your normal normal fish where it's got the, the spinal cord of the bones coming off. Your snook has got these long, thin bones through the middle of the fish. So it's easy just to take the flesh off the bone and eat it. Oh, delicious. Yeah, I mean, I'd, 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 some of my most thankful days were the days that I had the fresh fish retail shop. Yeah. And we got, in those days in the, in the 90s, so much different fishing that we could learn about the different flavors and different profiles of fish. And with the different things that we did with them, smoking them, frying them, grilling them, you name it. I mean, whatever way we could do fish, we did fish. But always the bright fish, and you had to find some or other flavor profile basting sauce that worked with a particular fish. Making a yellow belly rock cod, you wanted a champagne and butter sauce that you could mm. baste that with. Because that just, it just added a piquancy to the fish. You cobble yo, your cob. Or your Cape oh, salmon, yes. you maybe wanted you maybe wanted a citrus flavor into there, just to add in it, add in it, the, the flavor profiles there. But snook, snook is the master of apricot, garlic, and butter. That it just begs for that. Yeah, it's a delicious fish, and it's the it's the favorite of the Cape. You know, and I, I need to remind anybody who's listening to me who is from America, there is a fish over here called snook. It's a very different species that Richard and I are talking about. The one that we're talking about is spelt S-N-O-E-K. And I suppose if you were to define it, it looks something like a barracuda on steroids and they, they school up and swim in these massive schools in the cooler waters off the Western Cape. So it's a very different fish. It's a big predator um, and a vicious looking machine with these um, slender prehistoric teeth, a mouthful of prehistoric teeth. But you're right, those bones were long and toothpick-like um, and made pulling the meat off, off the bones so so much easier and a really beautiful fish to eat with your fingers. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Rich, Caballo, um, we've had some successful Caballo brides as well. Essentially, with, with cooking fish, we're, doing, we're cooking over pot coals uh, and really not for a long period of time, right? Very much so. Fish... Quick is better. So high heat. Yeah. I, I suppose if you're doing the fillets of fish, two sides of the fish, if you fillet the, the center bone out and taking the head off, is that you can actually see, if you put it skin side down in your bry grid, on the oiled bry grid so that it has skin doesn't stick to the grid, you can see that, that flesh cooking through. So just before it meets, meets halfway through, you turn it quickly and just brown that flesh and allow it to cook. Take it off the grill. I don't think a fish is a good what a two, two and a half centimeter, an inch, one inch thick fillet of fish won't need more than, more than two and a half, three minutes per side. And it's off and it's cooked and it's ready to eat because your fish carries on cooking once you take it off the heat. Right. Uh, and there's, I... a, there's a cracks point where you're going to leave it on too long and it looks like it's going to be perfect by the time it's cooled down and you've got everybody around the table and you're eating it, it's dried itself out. So you'd rather take it off slightly underdone. It's got a bit of moisture in it still. By the time you eat it, everybody's going to thoroughly enjoy it. 
The only difficulty with fish is that you've got his tail section, which is thin, and around the collarbone, which is nice and thick, and its center body, which is thick. So your tail will tend to crispen up and, and get dry. But your middle cut section is nice and thick, and that stays lovely and moist. So that, that takes a little bit of finessing with your coals to make sure you've got your heat distributed unevenly. And, uh, yeah. Definitely. And how, how you put it on your... You, you get these fish grids these days where you can actually put your, your fish into a fish grid. So it takes on the, the, the shape of the fillet or the whole fish if you do whole fish. Much easier to bride then. Yeah, to me, to me, the big... To me, the, the biggest problem with a fish bry is the fact that it's only half a drink bry. So to make it <laughs> at least a two, to make at least a two or three drink bry, you've got to have your bried sandwiches, which are also very much part of the, the, the African tradition where you take cheese and onion, tomato cheese and onion, you slap that between two slices of bread, well buttered on the outside. And you either get what's called a jaffel iron, which closes over the sandwich, and you put that into the coals, turn it a few times, and you eventually get this beautiful toasted sandwich out. Or you put your sandwiches into a double-sided grill, close the grill on top of them, flip them over a few times, and then when they're nice and toasted, you pull those out, and everybody nibbles on a, on a sandwich while you're waiting for the coals to render down and get ready for cooking. I yeah. go with you on that there, but I, I have to say a good toasted tuburuki, closed <laughs> sandwich. Is a, a magnificent You can do that as your breakfast bride because, I mean, we do like to have a bride any time of the day or night in South Africa. So you do that as a breakfast bride or maybe a lunchtime bride. But I prefer to do a tuburuki, a toasted sandwich, cheese and tomato, on low coals. So that's gentle coals that you can do it longer, that that buttered brown or the buttered white bread really gets nice and toasty and crisp on the outside. And that there's layers of thinly sliced red onion for the sweetness, that strong cheddar cheese, and the lovely fresh cherry tomatoes or buffalo tomatoes that's sliced in there with salt and pepper on. It melts inside those two slices of, of toast. And if you want to make it into a gourmet one, you put some beautiful Feinboss honey into that as well. And then you've got a gourmet sandwich. We, we toured Namibia a couple of years back, and um, we thought, when we did a Tosha, we thought we'd booked into self-catering, but it turned out that we didn't. And the food in the, in the rest camps were absolutely horrendous. So what we used to do, we used to go down for breakfast and we used to take a loaf of bread and put it in the bag and whatever mini butters we could find and sliced cheese and tomatoes and whatever, whatever we could find and go and light a fire in the campers section of the parks and go and make ourselves two brookies. And that was our staple breakfast and lunch for six days in Natasha. <laughs> was toasted cheese in the morning. I mean, they, they really were heavenly things. I think we mastered them that we could do a toasted sandwich for 15 minutes, that that cheese and, and onion melted into each other. There was liquid gold inside those things, whilst the outside became this crisp, lightly golden brown outside. Utterly delicious. Ah, uh, well, there we go. Listen, Rich, um, I'm not going to cut you off now because I want to. I'm going to have to cut us off now because of time and some limitations that I have. But I think what we've done is we've set ourselves up very nicely for uh, a, a second episode on brying where we can talk about the scottle bry. Um, since you mentioned brying for breakfast, I think that's an appropriate subject to cover there. And we yeah. haven't we haven't even touched on the poiki, the pot. Um, no, we haven't got near it yet. But that's okay, because those are two different styles of brying. 
rather than the traditional that we've just spoken about. Um, and I think in the, the next time we talk, we should actually introduce people to coals and, and the right substrate, the right material to use for making their, their bry coals just perfect. Um, but I think let's let's hold off on those until, until we can chat again. It's been a real pleasure catching up with you today. I'm glad we had the time. It's now getting ready for me to go and do a bit of cooking downstairs and get the family fed. So I hope you have a good evening and we'll we'll chat some more. Thanks very much, Will. It's been lovely catching up with you and chatting. And I hope that the guys that listen in are going to gleam something from out of this as well. Yeah, I look forward to the next chat. Okay, shot, Rich. Cheers for Love now. Love to the family. Bye. Cheers. Well, I, I hope you agree. That was a fascinating conversation with Rich. Uh, Richard Key about brying South African style. I hope it's inspired you to go and get some meat out the fridge, uh, get it up to room temperature and get the coals going, crack open a nice cold beer or pop the cork on a bottle of good red and let it breathe for a while. Happy brying everybody. Join us for our next episode when we discuss the other means of cooking meat outdoors under the sky. Look forward to chatting to you again soon. Bye-bye. <coughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>